0: The whole subject of uh, uh, joy and and, uh, boasting and glory. And the reason why I chose this subject is because that's really the the atmosphere that uh, we are presently going through, I think, right across the globe. Uh, To begin with, uh, here we are thinking in terms of Father's Day. And there's no doubt that uh, one of the reasons why we particularly want to think about our dads is because we don't just love them, but we are proud of them. At least we ought to be. Um, When I was growing up, I've never forgotten every so often when a bully gave me a tough time, I would say to him that I will go and call dad. And in my mind, Dad was that superhero who would come and uh, make this guy regret um, ever troubling Dad's son. Uh, Thinking back now, I realize that uh, I think in most of those situations, Dad would have probably undergone quite a bit of embarrassing situations. But that's the way we think. We, we think in terms of uh, our daddies being able to deal with all the threats around our lives. Indeed, all we need to do is to hide in them. And there's a place for that. Because, as you know, uh, in us thinking about God, we've been taught to think of him in terms of a father figure. Clearly, simply um, amplifying something of that joy and pride that we have in our earthly dads so that we can worship God appropriately in that way. Well, apart from that, there is the the World Cup craze. Now, uh, if you are not... Boasting of uh, the English team Then it should be worse for me Because uh, the Zambian team got knocked out long ago Uh, Nobody is talking um, about them But uh, I recall Just before the last World Cup Preaching in Brazil In fact, I went there just before And just after the World Cup And I've never forgotten that just before the World Cup, everything in Brazil revolved around their national team. I mean, every advert I looked at, I came out of uh, the airport, and when I turned round, the whole of the front glass from one extreme end to the other was Ronaldo lying down with a cell phone in his hands uh going from the airport pele who stopped playing football long ago was on um, one of the the billboards and everywhere it was that team well i went back a month or two later and uh, the 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 brazil team didn't do too well and all that was missing they they must have erased it with everything they had in them, to just forget about the, the loss that they had suffered. But here we are, with great hope and anticipation uh, in various uh, nations, uh, I think a little bit more in, in England than Zambia, but there we are, there is a sense of uh, hope and, and um, uh, joy and, 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 and pride. Um, The passage that we're thinking together from is uh, basically Galatians uh, 6 and um, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, May I never boast, Galatians 6 and verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, I think a, a superficial reading of that passage may give you the impression that Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, and a healthy Christian for that matter, you shouldn't boast or be proud of anything else except Uh, The cross. Now, clearly, as I said, that's a superficial understanding. Uh, What he really is talking about there is in terms of relativity. if, If you are priding yourself in anything other than this, when you come to this, it must be a thousand times more. That's what ought to scream, as it were for everybody's attention, so that if they were to summarize that which is your boast, they would summarize it in terms of the cross. Now, why do I say so? Well, clearly, Paul himself, as you make your way through um, a number of his epistles, you soon discover that he does mention boasting or glorying in one or two other things rather than the cross. An obvious example is First uh, Thessalonians 2 and verse 20 where in fact it talks about boasting in the Thessalonian church itself. Um, that they are his joy, they are his crown, they will be his boast. But clearly relative to what Jesus has done for him in the cross, that pales into complete insignificance. And that's what he means here. Perhaps a good example of it would be, imagine yourself uh, going through a forest in the middle of the night. Uh, You are carrying your torch, and your friend is carrying another torch. Uh, Let's assume that yours was more powerful than his. I'm pretty sure that will be one of the things you'll talk about when you arrive home. You will be boasting about your torch, how powerful it is. But then, if it was during the day, at noon, without any clouds in the sky... If you start boasting about your torch, we will all be thinking there is a problem there. Because you are in the midst of the sun in its noonday strength. The brightness coming from there is probably even making you want to put on dark glasses. What is a torch in that context? And that's really what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. He's not saying we shouldn't be proud of our daddies. He's not saying that assuming, okay, assuming England wins the World Cup, that you should be stoic and pretend nothing has happened. Of course, you you will be excited. But what he's saying is that that should still be nothing compared to the glory, the joy, the pride, the boasting that ought to be ours because of the cross of Christ. So this is what Paul is is dealing with here. And I think it's a real challenge that ought to come to all of us. We ought to, to pause in the midst of the Celebrating that's taking place in the world to ask ourselves, is this true of me at a spiritual level? Can I honestly say that when my friends and colleagues are around me, it's very clear to them where my boast is. That which thrills me Beyond compare. And I think that's the challenge of um, God's word to us as we think in terms of the world round about us. Let's quickly then get into the text and appreciate something of uh, what is there. First of all, why think about this subject at the end of uh, the epistle? Well, clearly, if you are familiar with the book of uh, Galatians, you will know that Paul began this epistle very angry. He, he, He was upset with what was happening in Galatia. And what upset him was that the Christians in this province were mixing faith in Christ with confidence in observing the law. And in this particular case, of course, the law of Moses. And Paul was very concerned about this. First of all, because anybody who is teaching you that salvation is a consequence of a mixture of these two, faith in Christ and observing the law, is leading you to hell Through a back door. It's not the way to heaven. And so he uses very strong words at the beginning of Galatians. In Galatians 1 and I begin in verse 6. He says there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And listen to this which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, in other words, even if I, Paul, come back again to you and now with a different message let him be eternally condemned. And he throws himself there. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. The point by the Apostle Paul here is that Christians must depend solely Only on the crucified Savior as the basis of our acceptance before God. Nothing else. And yet here were the Galatian Christians who were mixing faith in Christ. They didn't abandon Jesus altogether, but they were being made to think that you also need to... to Obey the law in order for God to accept you. The two must inevitably go together. Well, Paul here is saying, "Look at me." That's really what he's saying. He's saying, "I refuse to to mingle the the purity of Christ and Him crucified with." Anything else? He's done it um, a little um, in Philippians and chapter 3. We'll just uh, quickly turn there. Philippians chapter 3. And this is the way he puts it there. Again, really speaking strongly against the Judaizers, as uh, they are appropriately called. Galatians, sorry, Philippians chapter 3. Watch out for those dogs, he says in verse 2. He doesn't really mean canines, you know, the, the, the dogs that you have at home. He, he's referring in, 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 in real genuine anger to, to, to those who are going around trying to convince Christians to also hang on to the law as a basis of acceptance before God those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, listen to this, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who glory in Him, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Referring to himself, he says in verse seven. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness. Now, that's what I meant earlier on when I was talking about uh, two torches in the middle of the night. They, comparing the two, you can be proud of your torch. But now you are in the middle of the day under the burning heat and light of the noonday sun compared to that the surpassing greatness of knowing christ jesus my lord for whose sake i have lost all things inevitably i consider them rubbish that's the point at that point you don't want to talk about your time an embarrassment to even bring up that subject. Now, clearly, it's because the death of Christ is sufficient, it's enough to bring us before God. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness my beauty are my most glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. I don't need anything else. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Really, that's the point that the Apostle Paul is, is making for us here. And it's It's an all important uh, point right across uh, this epistle. He speaks in terms of, um, in in Galatians chapter 3, that Jesus has been made a curse for us. In other words, that which ought to have sunk us deeper than the grave into the flames of hell has been borne upon his shoulders. And we no longer need to feel threatened about it. It is gone. I wonder whether that's your faith this morning. That as you are sitting there, you can say with the hymn writer, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That when you appear before Almighty God, you will not need to try and bring in what so many other people try to bring in today. When you bring up the subject about their hope of acceptance before God, they are quick to add things like, well, um, I'm not bad. I I I try to do good things. Our parents brought us up very well. I have been baptized. I participate in the Lord's Supper. I'm active in the church, and so on and so forth. All that must be thrown into the rubbish And simply speak about the son of righteousness. Jesus has lived and died for me. That's enough. Having said that, it's very clear when you go back to Galatians and chapter 6. That Paul, in boasting of the cross, goes beyond the fruit of the cross... With respect to our justification. He goes beyond that. And he deals with the fruit of the cross with respect to our sanctification. Our transformation. A very real transformation that we can testify of. The change that takes place in our lives. Look at the way he puts it. Back to our text. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does Paul mean by that? He's clearly using... Picture language here. If we were to go back to first century Palestine and participate in that moment when an individual has been sentenced to death by crucifixion, the whole event spelled an end to this person's relationship with the world. Like Jesus, he would be taken out through the city gate, up the hill called Golgotha. He would be hung upon that terrible cross, and in excruciating pain, the world would either sympathize or scoff at him until he breathed his last. It was... The end of all his interpersonal relationships. It was the end of all his worldly activities. It spelled an end to all that. Now, what the world tries to do through good works, through legalism is an attempt to bring about that change. Every human being has a conscience. We all do. Even those who are pretending that morality is relative, they also have a conscience. They try to drown it, they make a very bad job of it, and therefore they keep it, but they never at the end of the day can claim that it's out of the question altogether. We all have consciences. And therefore, what legalists try to do, and that's what they were doing here, is to say, well, look, yes, you have done wrong, but life is like a scale, you see. So you you have your bad deeds on one side of the scale. If you can just multiply the number of good things you are doing and put them on this side of the scale, it may just tip over and therefore God will accept you into his heaven. You're not claiming you've never done bad things. But what you have done is to make sure that his various requirements in his law—circumcision, baptism, church going, Lord's supper, whatever, visiting the sick, giving food to the hungry, sharing your clothes with those that are naked—if they can behave, then God will say, "Well." Not bad. Come in. Come in. In other words, it's all an effort to be good. But let's face it, it's a terrible effort. Because the problem is not with the outside actions, the problem is with the heart, it is with the factory it's still producing moral filth. It's an effort in frustration. And if you have looked at your own heart, you know what I'm talking about. There's a book that we... We read when we were doing literature in high school many years ago um, it was um, called Government inspector and towards the end of this book uh it's basically a play towards the end of the play the the author paints a scenario where this person that thought was the government inspector had actually been writing what was taking place day by day in the lives of these individuals who were all pretending to be faithful but were really not and each time um, someone got a hold of this diary and tried to read the section about the friend, the friend would immediately grab it because it would be embarrassing. And when he grabs it and tried to read what was written about the other friend, he would grab it for the same reason. It was embarrassing. In other words, we can all pretend with one another to be good. But if I was to show on this digital projector your thoughts. The moment they try to press, I'm sure you'd want to grab this from me. Because <laughs> your, your thoughts coming from the heart are probably not as edifying as your faces look right now. The problem is the heart. It's the sin factory. And that's what the law cannot handle. It cannot solve. It's, the heart is beyond cure. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's saying, if we can just quickly peep at the next verse. He says in verse 15, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation merely undergoing a religious ritual, doesn't change the heart. You can be baptized a thousand times over. You're simply being changed from a dry sinner to a wet sinner. Still a sinner. Water doesn't change the heart. It can't. Christ alone does. And that's the reason why He died. In His death and resurrection, consequently, He ascended to heaven and received from the Father the blessed Holy Spirit whom He has sent into the world, and the Holy Spirit regenerates. He gives a new birth. He changes our hearts. He transforms us in a very real way. To a point where you are amazed at yourself. And that's the the, the glorious truth Of the Christian faith. It's this transformation that takes place. It is the power of heaven invading the human soul and transforming you from the inside out. Putting an axe to the root where there was love for the world, you now despise the world and where you despised God and the things of God, there is now a new love for God that you never knew before. Paul is using picture language here to point to that reality when he says, therefore, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love the fact that he brings the two sides together. He doesn't simply say, by which the world has been crucified to me. In other words, it's not just the fact that I am done with this um, joint conspiracy between the world and myself against God. Yes? Yes? It was there once upon a time. I'm now done with it. The world had an attraction towards me. It mesmerized me. I could not imagine life without the the, the sin, the, the moral filth that makes up life and living, without turning something about this physical world into an idol for myself. Life would lose its meaning without all these things. That was me once upon a time. Partying, whining and dining, premarital and extramarital, sexual relationships and so on. That was life. For Paul, it was the, the, the praise of, of the religious leaders, getting them to pat him on the back, boasting like any Pharisee would, concerning the the outward obedience to the law, making my way up the, the, the status ladder in, in, in the religious sect. That's what life was to me. The world had its attraction upon me. But it says, when I became a Christian, they died. I didn't care anymore about these things. They took on the last row of my life. Now, i I was mesmerized only by the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a new relationship. I loved the one that I did not love before. Is that true of you? W- w- would you say your worldly ambitions have crumbled? In front of you. That the world's opinion of you doesn't matter to you anymore. That in all your engagements in life, it is now simply that God may receive joy and glory and honor out of what you do for him. Is that what life is to you? Because that's what Christianity brings about. That change where in your own heart what now truly matters is God and the things of God. Well, as we said, Paul didn't end there. There was the other side which is equally true. And to me, it's the test. And it is this, that I am also crucified to the world. You see, before Paul's conversion, he was the blue-eyed boy of the Pharisees, of, of this religious order. They, they, they gloried in him. They, they, they spoke in terms of you know, soul of Tarsus. And, and the achievements that he was, he was making in life. The, he, 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 he was the, the hero, so to speak, of the younger generation that was looking up. When he became a Christian, they also threw him out. He became useless to their pride. They now despised him. Isn't that true with so many individuals who, to begin with, are on the, the world stage? And the, their faces are on the regular glossy magazines. They, they are the heroes of the world. And then one day they turn to Christ. And now, whatever it was that 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 was their main agenda, takes backstage, and the world fails to understand them. The world can't process that they should give up such worldly opportunities because of what they call religious convictions, juiceless religious convictions. They think you are mad. And in the process the world says forget him. Let's look elsewhere. And I to the world the apostle Paul says. And you know as Christians we should not be embarrassed about that. We should not apologize when that clashing of interest happens. That's what the cross does. It has changed us from the inside out. We have a different value system. Let's stick that in our minds. We are different. We are transformed. therefore, when the world spits on the ground, when our name is mentioned, Jesus says, don't be surprised. They did that with me first. And a servant is not greater than his master. I ask them, is this what the cross has done for you? Are you able to testify of this change? Not simply somehow in your mind grasping the fact that I need to depend on the cross and on the cross only, but also in reality your relationship with the world having changed in a very real way. Not because you are trying to get to heaven, but simply from the inside out. It's changed. When we are getting married, we say our vows. And one of the statements in the vows goes something like this. Forgetting all others. cling." only to him or her, for as long as life shall last. And I often have to say to young people getting married, our church comprises it. I'm one of the oldest in our church, by the way. Last year we had about 13 weddings. This year we've already had five, another six or seven lined up. So you can understand why this illustration is so fresh in my own mind. I have to say to young people, vows are one thing, processing those vows is another. In other words, you have to make the purposeful decision to forsake all others and cling only to him for as long as life shall last. Christianity is like that. You now end up with one Consuming passion to bring glory to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. In your speech, in your life, in all your interpersonal relationships, in the home, at work, at school, at church, wherever else you might be, in your dressing, in everything, it is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Why? Not because you are afraid to miss out on heaven. It's because you love Him. You joy in Him. You glory in Him. The the fact that He has lived and died for you overwhelms you. And consequently, you say to Him, Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life my all. Oh, that's the Christian life. And I pray that as we glory in so many things around about us, this glorying in the Lord, and what He has done for us, might be like the sun shining in His full noonday splendor compared to the torches in our hands of fathers, and football